John chapter number two is where we are, and we've been refocusing on Jesus. That's been our theme so far. And for the past four weeks, what we've been doing is uh, kind of keeping to a Christmas theme with that. And we've been looking at uh, passages surrounding Jesus' birth. And so first we saw that Jesus is the greatest gift. And then we saw that he's often overlooked or underappreciated because he doesn't do things our way. He does them his way. And then we found out that uh, those who accept him uh, have come to find out that life is better with Jesus in it. And then last week we meditated on the fact that Jesus is so much more than the baby in the manger. The world will celebrate the baby. They will put out the nativity sets and all that. But they don't realize he is so much more. And even in what we looked at last week, I think we just barely scratched the surface on who he is. And so this week we're going to pick back up with where we left off before Christmas. And uh, what we were looking at, Jesus had burst onto the scene. He was baptized by John. Uh, he showed us how to overcome temptation uh, in his time there in the wilderness. And then he began calling his disciples unto himself. And we saw that the disciples aren't the type of people that we would have chosen. If we were to pick out disciples, it wouldn't have been the 12 that he got. But uh, we found that with those disciples, he knew them. He loved them. He pursued them. Uh, he transformed them. Then he sent them out. And he must have known what he was doing. That shouldn't be a surprise because those men that he chose uh, went on to turn the world upside down with the gospel. They transformed, they changed the world uh, because of the message that they brought. And we are here today and we are still benefiting from their work and their ministry uh, on behalf of Christ. And so that was the ones that he had brought, that he had uh, chosen there. And so that brings us to our passage here today in John chapter 2. Uh, the disciples haven't yet left all to follow Jesus. He came, he called them, and we've, we've kind of broken this down in the past that uh, he came and uh, they met up with him and they kind of started observing him a little bit and uh, following him a little bit locally and then going back to their jobs and then he come back and they, and there was almost like three different callings of these guys. But finally, they were going to uh, leave all and follow him. They haven't quite done that just yet. And so in our passage here in John 2, uh, they've all been around the same area. Uh, they're becoming associated with Jesus as his disciples. And there is a wedding that's going on in their hometown. And so they're invited to this wedding. And then trouble arises at that wedding. And Jesus saves the day. So that's where we're at today. Uh, John chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse number 1. It says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what, I, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set that excuse me, and there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Uh, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, 
and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have, have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you once again this morning. Just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this passage that we've read, and Lord, for all of the examples in your word, all of the different lessons that it teaches us, Lord, how we can get to know you and uh, see uh, see your character, your personality, the way that you interact with people. We thank you, Lord, for all the lessons that you bring to us. And Lord, we just ask you that you would speak to our hearts and our minds today. Pray that you'd instruct us from your word. I pray that you just guide and direct me as I, as I attempt to preach your word today. And Lord, just do that which is needed in hearts and lives. And Lord, we just praise you for all that you do. We just thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in this passage, I find it interesting that this is Jesus' first miracle. We saw down there in verse number 11, this beginning of miracle. So it's his first miracle. This idea that people have of Jesus as a baby from the very youngest of ages performing miracles and doing things almost like a carnival act, uh, that's not consistent with Scripture. This is where he began his ministry. This is where he began doing miracles. And I find it interesting that he began at a wedding. Okay, We find that in the beginning, whenever God created all things, one of his first dealings with man, it says that he looked upon man and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will provide and help meet for him. And God officiated the first wedding. God was the one that instituted marriage. He is the one that began all of it. It was one of his first interactions with man. And whenever Jesus began his ministry on earth, one of his first miracles, his interactions here recorded, is at a wedding. Not only is that connection uh, interesting to me, but whenever he performs his first miracle, he's not causing the lame to walk or the blind to see or the dead to rise. Instead, he is at a wedding, a joyful occasion, a happy moment, a celebration, and he is participating in that. And he is uh, increasing, if you will, the celebration. He is uh, helping it to continue. He is avoiding a breakdown of that celebration. And so we see in this that uh, it kind of sets the stage, if you will, for who Jesus is and what he's going to be doing because we see that he is not some uh, ascetic type uh, trying to draw out all the fun and kill out all the joy, but instead that he uh, is very warm, very present, very available in all of this, that he is ministering to the the needs not just of the body, not just the soul, but also of the hearts and the minds of these people. And so just the fact that the first occasion, whenever he comes on the scene, the first miracle that he does is joyful, I believe speaks a lot to us. And so I'm glad for this being here in this, in this passage here. I'm glad we see here him kind of putting his stamp of approval on marriage and on this relationship once again. And as we look at this, a lot of people will focus on the fact that it talks about wine in it, okay? And I'm not going to focus on wine and on drinking and whatnot. Let me just put it this way. The Bible puts plenty of warnings against drunkenness. 
puts plenty of warnings against alcohol. And I don't believe that what Jesus was doing here was giving these people an avenue and a way to become drunken and intoxicated. And it, that just doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture we see. Even in Habakkuk, I believe it's chapter number two, he says, Woe unto the man who gives his neighbor drink. Okay, And so we find plenty of that within Scripture. And so I don't believe that, that Jesus was making wine, especially this much wine, to call some kind of a drunken revelry to go on at this wedding, okay? So for anyone who, who looks at this and tries to use this to um, advocate for drunkenness, they have missed the entire point of Scripture, okay? But anyway, that's a side note. I just want to go on from that. And so we see the that Jesus is working in a miracle here at a wedding, at a celebration, at a time of joy. He's providing for needs of people. He is... Uh, they are involved in all of this. But there is a problem that takes place here. So just looking at this problem in the Jewish culture, a wedding was a huge social event. Okay. Now, in Ireland, they're a social event, but not to the, the effect that they would have been in Israel. In Israel, amongst the Jewish culture, it would have been for a small wedding uh, several days to a week-long celebration for a small one. The entire village, the entire city would be involved in this wedding. There would be people coming from all around. It would be a huge occasion. The families would spend huge amounts to host this, and the focus wasn't necessarily on the bride and the groom, but it was on everybody who came out. And so with this, uh, the reputation of the families was either aided or harmed by the wedding they put on. Now, we know that uh, a lot of occasions are still to be seen or to try to uh, evoke social status or something within the community, but it was a major thing within Jewish culture. If you had family getting married, you threw a huge bash, a huge celebration. It would have been a big thing, and with it, people would be talking about this wedding. They would be talking about the family. They'd be talking about the people. And if something went wrong at that wedding, you can guarantee people would be talking about that. Right. And so for something to go wrong at the wedding, something as huge as running out of refreshments for the people attending, that would have been a huge social blunder. This would have been something that would have been a mark against the family. This is something, especially in a very um, superstitious community, would make them see the couple as doomed, as cursed, as if it was a bad omen because of how they began their marriage. Okay? And so in this, there was a problem that was at, at hand. There was something that, although it seems small, although it seems insignificant, for them to run out of wine at the wedding would have been very detrimental to this couple and to their families. This would have been something that would have been a black mark. It would have been a spot on their reputation. It would have been a huge embarrassment in a culture that put a lot of emphasis on things that were honorable and those that were shameful. This would have been something that would have knocked them down a rung or two in society. Okay? And so the reason I say all of this is that running out of drink at the wedding would seem like something small 
to most people, but to the people there at the wedding, to their families, to the bride and groom, this would have been a huge thing. Okay? And so whenever we think of Jesus' miracles, we usually think of huge things, right? As I said already, we think of him uh, healing the lame man, of him raising the dead, bringing Lazarus to life, of him causing the blind to see, of these kind of miracles, of feeding the 5,000, those kind of miracles. But the first one that Jesus was going to do to kind of set his pace was that he fulfilled this need at this wedding. And so the reason why I bring this out is it shows that Jesus isn't just interested in the big, the life-altering things, but he also cares about the personal things and the things that sometimes would seem frivolous to us. And so it may not be important to a lot of people, but if it's important to you, it's important to him. And so whenever it comes to us taking our burdens and our cares to the Lord, how often do we limit our prayers? How often do we hold back because the things aren't as big or aren't important, maybe don't merit a touch of God in, in that situation by our estimation? Do we ever do that? It's not worthy to pray about. I feel silly asking you pray about, we've heard that before, right? I know even uh, right before Christmas, Les was asking prayers about the, the box that was sent from her mom's over to here. She says, I feel silly asking prayer for this, but please pray for this. And we did, we prayed about it. And it came on Christmas Eve. There you go. And so that was the way the Lord answered that. And so this was just telling us that God does answer prayers, that he does care about even the little things, even the things that a lot of people would think are silly or superficial or insignificant, but the Bible tells us that we are to cast all of our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. And so in this wedding, they cast their cares upon him. They're out of wine. This is going to be a huge mark against us. This is going to be a social disaster. This is going to be an embarrassment. Can you do something about it? And that was the foundation. That was the backstory for his first miracle. And so don't hold back whenever you think something is silly or not big enough because the Bible clearly tells us that he cares for us. And so we, we uh, assess the problem. Now we look at the petition that was asked. Mary seems to have either been related to those who were getting married or part of the, the planning and the carrying out of the festivities because she had insider information. As they were running out of supplies, they would have tried to keep that under wraps. They would have tried to keep that quiet. Mary knew about it. So that lets me know that she was close to the situation. She knew what was going on. And so when she learned of the problem, she didn't try to sort it out herself. She didn't try to come up with a solution. She didn't go to everyone and everywhere else. She went straight to Jesus. She had been around Jesus long enough after all of the years that she had spent with him, she knew that if anyone could take care of this problem, it would be him. Could you imagine being Mary raising up Jesus, the Son of God, with all the wisdom and might that he had, raising him up in her house, and her noticing that he always had the answer, 
that he always knew what to do, that he had wisdom that surpassed the others around. I figure maybe Joseph got aggravated because it seemed like Jesus knew better than he did. You know, for a father, if your kids know the answers and you don't, then that, that's troubling, right? And I might be looking too far into this, but I believe that Jesus had a track record uh, that his mom had seen, that he knew what he was doing, that he knew what the best solution would be. And I don't think that she was expecting a miracle. As I already brought out in verse number 11, this was his first miracle. She wasn't coming to him and saying, do a miracle, but she was coming to him, trusting him, knowing that he could come up with something if anybody could. And so she asked him, I'd be praying, right? She asked in faith and expectation. She knew that he could, and she knew that he would. She didn't know how it was going to work out. She didn't know how he would answer the prayer. She didn't know how he would put things together, but she knew that the situation was safe in his hands. And so whenever, uh, even whenever he gave a little bit of initial hesitation there in verse number four, she still was unfazed. She said they're out of wine. She left it in his hands. And then it was like she unloaded the problems no longer mind. The ball is in his court. And she left. You know so? And so I believe this is a huge lesson for us in prayer because we can bring all things to him knowing that he can and that he will, and then we can leave it in his hands. And so she walked away knowing that it was as good as dealt with. She could take care, take it to him, he would take care of it. But as she was leaving, she gave some practical advice. She told the servants there, in uh, verse number five, whatever he saith unto you, do it. She had prayed about it. She prayed in faith. She knew that he had it under control. And she said, in the meantime, just do whatever he says. And so <clears throat> even though she didn't know what he would do, where it would lead, she trusted him anyway. She didn't place everything on hold, saying, okay, let's wait. And let's see if he answers this prayer. Let's wait, put everything on pause. She went about doing other things. She continued onward, and she said, do whatever he says. She didn't try to come up with a plan B, just in case. She didn't find other people to fulfill the need. She left it in his hands and said, do whatever he says. And so while we're waiting for an answer to our prayers, I believe we need to keep trusting, keep serving, and keep following, keep doing whatever he says in the meantime. We need to be faithful while we're waiting because we don't know when the answer is going to come, how it's going to come. We just need to know that it's in good hands and that he'll take care of it. We continue doing whatever he says, trusting him, which that brings us to the next thing is that we find here a peculiar activity in verses seven and eight. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. In verse number eight, and he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And so what does water pots and water have to do with this problem of running out of wine? We already know the answer because we've read the rest of the story, right? But put yourself in the position of the servants. Okay. They don't necessarily know Jesus. They don't know what Mary knows. Mary has told them, do whatever he says. And he says, get these stone pots, 
that are to be filled with water that are typically used for ceremonial cleansing. They would be washing, I don't know, hands, uh, dishes, plates, whatever. Basically, this was the sink, okay? And he says, fill it up with water, and they say, I have no idea where this is going. We don't have enough, wa uh, enough wine left over. We could possibly water it down and stretch it a little bit, right? But we don't have enough for that, and definitely not enough to merit this much water being used. And so that wouldn't make sense. And so whenever he says, draw out the water from the sink, basically, this stone pot, and give it to the governor of the feast. If you would put yourself in the servant's position here, you'd be a little bit nervous, wouldn't you? You'd be a little nervous thinking, okay, I know this is water. It is being brought out of not a serving dish. I'm not getting this out of the punch bowl. I'm getting this out of the equivalent of a sink, and I'm going to take it to the person who is in charge of all the ongoings here at the feast, basically to their boss, right? Because they're the servants. He's the governor of the feast. And so I'm going to take him sink water to drink because we're out of wine. Lord, how does this fix my problem? But they obey. They didn't wait for answers. They didn't ask questions. They obeyed. That's an amazing thing for me. How often is it that we have to know all the answers first? How often is it we have to draw the lines and have a roadmap and say, God, I will follow you. I will trust you if you give me step-by-step -step directions. If you show me where this is leading me to, if you show me what the answer is, if you show me this is how it's going to work out, then I will follow. That's our attitude a lot of times, right? But they, they, they didn't wait for those answers, but they obeyed and they took this water to the governor of the feast and he drunk it and it was turned wine in his cup. And I don't know that necessarily he tells them what has happened, but his response is, hey, go and get the groom. And so the servants are still puzzled by what's going on and they're going nervously and saying, okay, we're going to the groom to get him now. What is the governor of the feast going to say? And then they hear the governor of the feast say to the groom, you kept the good stuff until last. This wine that I'm drinking now is better than what we started out with. And only the servants knew what was going on. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And so what's the lesson for us in this? We find that God can be trusted to take care of us. We can find in this that God often answers our prayers in ways that look different than what we expected, in ways that are different than we expect, and places that we aren't even looking for, and people that we don't even understand, don't even know that are on the, on the agenda anywhere. And so from all these different places, these different things, and ways, directions we're not even looking at, God is bringing about an answer to our problem and to our prayers. And so if we sit down and if we wait, if we're looking for answers, if we're waiting for it to make sense, a lot of times we're going to miss it. But if we continue serving, we continue trusting and allowing him to work, he is going to bring about something that we are not going to be able to see coming, but it's going to be better than what we had hoped for. You notice that whenever he brought this wine, 
how many water pots was there? What did he say there? Six water pots containing two or three firkins apiece. Uh, we're not familiar with the measurement firkin, are we? A firkin is a bunch, okay? This would have been 50 liters, I think, somewhere around 50 liters apiece. Six of those water pots. That was a lot of wine, wasn't it? And not only was there an abundance, it was better quality as well. He didn't do anything that was subpar. He didn't do just enough to get by. He didn't give them just a little bit. Remember whenever he turned uh, the, lunch, uh, the, the lad's lunch into enough to feed everyone? There was leftovers. He ended up with more than he started with. Aren't you glad you don't have to figure out his math? He ended up with more than he started with, and I've got to figure that the fish that he served out and the bread that he served out was probably the best they'd ever eaten because that's the way he does things. And so the wine was the best they'd ever drink. There was more than they could drink, I believe, here. And so whenever we let God work, he does things differently than we expect in ways that we aren't even looking for. He's got options that we didn't even realize that was on the table, and he's going to make it better than what we thought it could be. We can look at it all throughout Scripture that Jesus or that God works in unusual ways. We find that uh, Moses was a stuttering shepherd. He's not the one that I would have picked to lead Israel out of Egypt. David was a boy with a sling. If we look at Jesus, whenever he was born, he was a virgin son. His stepdad was a carpenter. They were poor people in Nazareth. And we all know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right? And he was crucified on the cross. Whenever God said, I'm going to bring salvation to mankind, that was the method that he used. Is that, what, is that the plan that we would have written out? Not by any means. But it was more than sufficient, wasn't it? And so when you're trying to figure out what God's doing, or while you're trying to tell him how to do it, as I said, he's going to take someone or something that you never thought of, He's going to bring it from a direction that you weren't even looking, and he's going to bring in a, a result that you didn't expect because he's God and he's that good. The last thing that I want to look at in this passage today is the partial awareness. You realize in this passage that there was very few people that realized what even happened. Jesus was here, and he did a phenomenal miracle, and no one even knew it. He didn't make a huge production of it. He didn't come up and embarrass the people and say, hey, they didn't bring enough, but I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to save the day. Watch what I'm going to do. He just came in and fulfilled the need. He flew in under the radar, if you will, and fulfilled the need. The governor of the feast didn't know. The bride and the groom didn't know. They were on the verge of social embarrassment. If Jesus wouldn't have acted, if he wouldn't have done anything, this would have ruined their reputation. Their honeymoon was over. And they didn't realize how close they came because they didn't even realize what Jesus had done. But it does tell us down here in verse number 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Not everyone knew, not everyone saw, but the ones who needed to did. The disciples saw it. They believed on him. Their faith was increased. And so think about how many people benefited from this prayer that Mary prayed. 
from this miracle that Jesus did and didn't even know that they were the beneficiaries. Think about how many people this touched that weren't even aware of it. And so your prayers have far-reaching results. You're not going to know the lives that they touch. Or you're not going to know the events that they change. You're not going to know the things that God is doing through your prayers. But that should be a great incentive for us to continue praying. There's going to be many people touched because of the prayers you've prayed and for the things that God does through you. But also think of this. How many prayers have been offered up on your behalf? How many things in your life are the result of prayers that others have prayed for you and you didn't even know it? That couple at the wedding, they didn't know that they almost faced disaster. They didn't know they were benefits of Jesus' miracle and of Mary's prayer. They had no clue. How many things is there in our lives we have no clue that God has done for us? How many prayers have been prayed on our behalf that we never heard, that we were never aware of, but that God has worked for our blessing, for our benefit? Story would have been a lot different if Mary kept quiet, and I'm glad that she didn't keep quiet. I'm glad that she prayed. So just a few lessons from this passage. Pray for everything, even the little things. Pray for everything, all things by prayer and supplication to God, right? All things. Pray knowing that he can and that he will. The Bible says, let us ask in faith, not wavering. And so pray knowing that he can and he will. Keep faithful while he works. He doesn't always answer immediately like he did here. But until he does, continue doing whatever he says. Just continue faithfully. We saw that he, his answers come when you don't expect it in ways that you don't expect and will be better than you expect because he's God and he's that good. And the last thing that we saw is you don't know who your prayers are affecting or whose prayers are affecting you. So keep on praying and trusting God. So just a little encouragement there in our prayer life because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Just thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for this lesson that we have here uh, from this prayer that Mary offered up, Lord. We are thankful, Lord, that you don't just care about the big things, and Lord, that you'll intervene even in the, the seemingly frivolous. We're thankful, Lord, that, uh, uh, that you are a God of joy and of celebration, Lord, that you are a God of abundance and of goodness. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you're always available, you're always present working things together for our good. Help us, Lord, not to neglect prayer. Help us, Lord, not to doubt you, Lord, when we do pray. And Lord, I just pray, asking you, Lord, just to do the needed work in the hearts and lives of each person here today. Draw them closer to you, Lord. Help them, Lord, to set their affections and their love upon you, Lord, and help them, Lord, to be a light and a witness in this world we live. Thank you, Lord, for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.